Did I ever tell you about that nap I had in 2011? It was a nap that I literally had to fly across country for. But what it taught me was that I did not have a clue as to what the fuck being rested was. I've mentioned sleep a few times, how it boosts testosterone, oxytocin, and increases arousal. Sleep is the elixir for the juices of life. Welcome back to Age Lust, a podcast about lustful aging, where we spark conversations, ignite passions, and expand your thinking around the wise years. My name is Jessica. I'm your host. I'm a family nurse practitioner with close to 20 years of working in wellness. I'm also a certified menopause provider through the North American Menopause Society, and I coach people on stuff like sex, hormones, and mind expansion as medicine. Today's episode is all about sleep and aging, sleep in midlife, hormones, and how to get more of that magical elixir. Maybe you haven't had a good night's sleep in months. Maybe it's been years, even decades. Let me tell you about that nap. It seems like the only time I actually rest is when I travel across the country or out of the country. I'm going to tell you about the nap. It was the first time I had traveled without my children. I was the plus one at a wedding in California, and I was also going through a divorce. So one morning, I woke up extremely early because having children will train you to wake up at the ass crack of dawn. When I woke up this particular morning, I was super grouchy. I felt bloated. I had a headache. Looking back, I was probably going into a hormonal drain. It was probably perimenopause. But my partner, being the lovely host that he was, he was thoughtful enough, if you know what I mean, to help me with my headache. After everything got cleaned up, I decided to take a nap. I fell asleep, and I don't know how long I slept for. It was obviously still morning, I don't know, 8 a.m., and woke up at 9 a.m. I don't know, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But when I woke up from this nap, I thought to myself, this is what they mean by rested. I feel rested. I could feel a change in my mood, a smile on my face. I was renewed. That magic elixir worked. Andrew Huberman, who hosts Huberman Labs, is a neuroscientist out of Stanford. And he tweeted around his sleep episode, which I urge you to check out. He tweeted, best nootropic, sleep. Best stress relief, sleep. Best trauma release, sleep. Best immune booster, sleep. Best hormone augmentation, sleep. Best emotional stabilizer, sleep. If I look at that list, I think sleep helped me with my stress. The trauma I was going through at the time obviously helped my hormones and it absolutely helped my emotions. Sleep can change everything, but for some of us, it's easier said than done. So I've mentioned in past podcasts that I'm like a toddler when it comes to chronic sleep protesting. I will secret chocolate. And what that's actually called is revenge bedtime procrastination. And that was a term that was created during the pandemic. The Sleep Foundation describes it as giving up sleep for leisure. You delay going to bed and as a result, you decrease your sleep time. There are two signs that you are in revenge bedtime procrastination mode. 
The first is that you have no valid reason for staying up. You are literally bullshitting the bullshitter, which is you. The second is that while you're doing this, you know that you are fucking your shit up entirely. There are also possibly two reasons that you do this revenge bedtime procrastination. One is that it's a behavioral issue. Like this is just self-regulation, like grow the fuck up and put your ass to bed. And the second is that perhaps you're really a nighttime person and not a daytime person. And you're forcing yourself into that early bird catches the worm situation. And that's just not how your constitution is set up. One small study showed that the two largest populations for this revenge bedtime procrastination are women and students. But the result is that when we do this revenge bedtime procrastination, we have issues with thinking, the processing of thinking, memory, and decision making. So what is sleep actually? Wikipedia defines sleep as a state of reduced mental and physical activity in which consciousness is altered and sensory activity is inhibited to a certain extent. Just a word of warning, I'm about to talk about the brain and stuff. If you're not into that and you want to skip to what to do about sleep, feel free to move yourself towards the end of the podcast. But if you like to learn some shit, stay. Sleep consists of two parts, REM and NREM. When they come together, they create the sleep cycle. About 20 to 25% of the cycle is REM, which is rapid eye movement. That induces the dreaming state. It also decreases muscle tone and repairs the brain. The remaining 75 to 80% is NREM or non-REM, which is a deeper, more restorative sleep. It increases growth hormone. Think about muscle and tissue repair, strengthens the immune system, and it progressively goes from light to a deep sleep in three stages. This is also when we think about um, binaural beats and delta waves, theta waves, that kind of progression. This cycle happens about five times in a night, so relatively eight hours of sleep. And there are about 90 to 120 minutes between each cycle. Sleep is so important that the Journal of Menopausal Medicine discussed the sleep cycle. So I'm going to go into what that journal said, or in this particular article, as well as bring in some information that I found from a site called Frontiers. But I have links to everything in the show notes. Sleep is controlled by the brain in two ways and involves three parts of the brain. It actually involves more than that, but we're going to focus on three parts of the brain. Some of these parts, two of these parts at least, you've already heard of in some of the past episodes. The first one is the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is located in the base of the brain. It makes hormones that control hormones released in the pituitary. I'm going to talk about one of those hormones that control hormones. The hypothalamus controls water balance, sleep, temperature, appetite, mood, and reproductive behavior, as well as blood pressure. When we talked about oxytocin and testosterone, we talked about blood pressure and water as well. The second part of the brain that is involved in sleep is the preoptic area of the hypothalamus, the POA. And that's located in the 
front of the hypothalamus. It's called the anterior part of the hypothalamus. It serves, and I'm basically reading this all directly, it serves as an essential brain region to coordinate sleep and body temperature. The POA also releases luteinizing hormone releasing hormone. This signals the follicle stimulating hormone and the luteinizing hormone to do their thing, which includes the release of progesterone. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit, because when we think about the transition of perimenopause into menopause, postmenopause, progesterone plays a huge part. The pineal gland is the third part of the brain. This gland is located in the middle of the brain. It's also called the master gland if you're into yoga. I practiced kundalini for a very, very long time, plus other types of yoga, and there was like all this, this decalcification of the pineal gland. I don't, I don't really buy it, but whatever. It's a cute idea. Headstands, super helpful. Um, so anyway, this gland is located in the middle of the brain and it makes the hormone melatonin. You probably hear about melatonin a lot. You can buy melatonin. This hormone helps your body to know when it's time to sleep. It also regulates the timing of other functions throughout the body, such as when puberty starts. Now to break it down a little bit more, now you know where the brain is working and we're going to talk about the two processes, 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 processes that induce sleep, which are homeostatic process and circadian process, circadian, circadian process. So homeostatic and circadian. And you can think about the circadian rhythm. You've probably heard that term and you've probably heard of the term homeostasis, a balance. Let's start with homeostasis. The homeostasis process is what the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, call pressure for sleep. It's a homeostatic sleep drive. The longer we stay up, the pressure gets stronger the longer we stay up after a full night of good quality sleep. Maybe it was like a midnight flight. I don't know. It just seemed fucking dark from the moment we left to the moment we landed to finally getting to the house. I watched my kid and then I I could remember like so fucking tired that it's just it's painful in the body. That pressure is so built up where, you know, you just want to cry. It's just, it's so fucking painful. That, that pressure can be, is real and you can actually feel it. The second process is the circadian process. The circadian process is what the menopausal medicine journal called a circadian pacemaker. Basically, it's an internal clock that's in the hypothalamus, which we just talked about. And it tells us it's time to sleep. The pacemaker is set off with exposure to the sun. Darkness prompts the pineal gland to start to produce melatonin, while light causes the production to stop. But you may be thinking, you said that one was at the base and one was in the middle. Like, how do they communicate? How do they signal? Well, this is what happens. Light passes through the retina of the eye and activates specific receptors called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. These cells contain something called melanopsin. I think I'm saying it right. I don't know. I could be saying it wrong. 
And they signal that there's light to the pineal gland. So they signal to the pineal gland, hey, there's light. And that's how that works. How the hypothalamus and the pineal gland speak to each other. Because if they're in different parts of the brain, like what's going on? Well, you know that there are chemicals that are happening and there are signals and there's a lot of electricity and in the brain, in our whole entire body working. The hypothalamus is the rhythm. It's the metronome of the circadian rhythm. And there's a part of it that I'm actually going to read this quote. It says via the SCN, which is a part of the hypothalamus projections to the PVN, another part, which controls the production and secretion of the rhythmically oscillating sleep hormone melatonin in the pineal gland. That is how the hypothalamus coordinates sleep patterns. I hope that put that connection together. So the light comes in and it signals, hey, pineal gland, light is here. Let's have that melatonin. It's receptive as far as I can understand making these connections. It's receptive because the hypothalamus is the central coordinator saying, oh yeah, well, you know what? It's a kind of time to sleep anyway. It's a rhythm to go down and go to sleep. So you might be thinking, what does this have to do with aging or how does sleep affect aging? Well, one thing may be as we get older, we have less exposure to sun. Maybe we're stuck in the house. We're definitely stuck at jobs. What if you have a job that you leave the house when it's dark and leave the job when it's dark and the breaks that you have for whatever reason, you don't have access to outside, but you still are not getting that morning sunlight and you're not getting any afternoon sunlight. We can also think about this aging in children. Kids don't necessarily play outside anymore. One fun fact about sleep is how it affects arousal. Blood flow increases in the genitals during REM sleep, that rapid eye movement sleep. But during non-REM sleep, that deeper relaxation, the vagina and vulva are more vascular than the penis. So you're a grown-ass adult woman who wakes up at 3 a.m. in a fucking panic or a pool of sweat and you need to pee. Well, like, what is that about? Well, it could be that we're waking because of the sweating and it could be that our handoff from REM, that active dreaming, to that first stage of NREM is so light. After a cycle or two, we wake up. So you've had a couple good cycles, and then that you hit that third cycle, you do the REM, then you're into that light stage of NREM, and you all of a sudden wake up. It could also be that you're having those 3 a.m. wakings because you drink wine and or you drink some liquor to calm down from the day and unwind. It is one of the worst things you could possibly do. It could also be that chocolate because I told you I like to sneak chocolate. It's not a sneak, but you know what I mean? I like to sit down and eat the chocolate at night. Well, this is a stupid fucking idea on my part because there's definitely caffeine in chocolate. Anyway, this 3 a.m. waking, which seems to be pretty universal, happens for a lot of us in perimenopause. And it doesn't seem to happen so much for people who are not in perimenopause and menopause, meaning men. But let's talk a little bit about hormonal shifts, specifically in terms of perimenopause and menopause. 
I think it's worth mentioning that there was a study of 16,065 women ages 40 to 45. It's called the SWAN study, which stands for Study of Women's Health Across the Nation. It took place in several U.S. hospitals, and it started in, I believe, 1994. A large segment of that study was based on sleep. And when they talk about across the nation and trying to create a, an inclusive study, this study was conducted in English, Spanish, Cantonese, and Japanese. What they found is that sleep disorders increase with age. They not only increase with age, but more specifically, they found that sleep was more irregular for Black women. Now, if you are saying to yourself, oh, I wonder why that is, like, I'm not going to tell you because you should know, okay? <laughs> a large part of the study found that disorders such as restless leg syndrome, insomnia, night waking, and obstructive sleep apnea. But more specific, up to 47% of perimenopausal women and up to 60% of postmenopausal women are tired because they are not sleeping. Again, it's the 3 a.m., it's the restless leg syndrome, which my father used to call spilkus, and he would say like, oh, I couldn't sleep last night, I had spilkus. Or, oh, I got spilkus during the day too, which is this restless, bouncy leg thing that's happening. Sleep disturbance can happen from something called sleep apnea or obstructive. You might have heard of obstructive sleep apnea or sleep apnea. It is when you stop breathing in your sleep. So what does it look like? It can seem like super dramatic snoring. All of a sudden there's a kind of like, <laughs> and they've woken themselves up because they've literally stop breathing for a moment. Most of the time, you may not notice that you have it, but if you have a partner or you live with people, they may hear you snoring or your partner might be like, yo, you stop breathing in the middle of the night. So here's the interesting thing. I have some really smart friends, like get yourself some smart friends. Always get people who are smarter than you to surround you, but that's just like a rule in life that I like to follow. And many of those friends happen to be nurse practitioners. I have one friend in particular who has a ton of degrees. She just likes to study. That's probably why we get along together. She, she even wrote a textbook. She is a family nurse practitioner. She is a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And now she's a certified psychedelic integrative provider, something like that. Anyway, we were discussing a patient that was depressed and nothing seem to help them. Jill, that's the NP that I'm talking about, Jill, not the not the patient's name. Jill suggested that I see if they had sleep apnea. And she said, use use the tool called Stop Bang and see if they meet the criteria. Her reasoning was if you're not sleeping and you're not getting the restorative sleep, that can make you super depressed. I know this for a fact because with my own insomnia, if I don't sleep, I'm a hot ass mess. With my father who had obstructive sleep apnea, I would watch his depression just get deeper and deeper. Well, this particular patient was a male patient and he did meet the criteria. And I'm just going to tell you the questions quickly. The first question is, do you snore loudly? Louder than talking or loud enough to be heard through closed doors? If it's a yes, you get a point. Do you often feel tired, fatigued, or sleepy during the daytime? If it's a yes, you get a point. Has anyone observed you stop breathing during sleep? That <laughs> yes, you get a point. Do you have or have you been treated for high blood pressure? 
Yes, you get a point. Is your BMI over 35? You get another point. And if you're over 50, again, you get a point. For this particular patient, he got lots of points. This allowed us to figure out what the next step was and get closer to solving this problem called depression for him, right? These tools are great, but not all tools are for all people. Up to 67% of postmenopausal women suffer from obstructive sleep apnea. And while the classical symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea are snoring, gasps of breath in the middle of the night, and daytime exhaustion, some people in the menopausal transition have different symptoms. They have daytime fatigue. They may have gained weight in menopause as so many of us do. They may also have morning headaches, insomnia, and these will all happen more frequently than not. And they're not gonna be like one-off. Like I had a headache, I woke up with a headache three months ago, four months ago. I mean, I guess it could, you know, you'll, you would talk to your provider to figure that shit out, but you know, it's going to probably happen more than you think. So it's something to think about and investigate as far as figuring out how to get that magic elixir. Okay. So let's put it all together. You now know that I had a foundational white light, beautiful nap in 2011, and I've been chasing that fucker for years. You know how sleep works, what parts of the brain it works with. You know how great sleep is for you, and you also know a couple of the things to look for that might be disrupting your sleep. I'm going to give you some tips on how to get more sleep. And by fucker, I mean the nap not the guy. So here are the tips. I don't really know if he calls himself Andy. I don't give a fuck. That's what I'm saying right now. Okay. Number one, get direct sunlight twice a day. Within the first hour of waking up, two to 10 minutes of the vitamin D, which is not dick, it's actually sunlight, sunlight into those eyeballs and don't wear sunglasses when you're doing it. You're not going to look like directly in the sun. Like, don't be stupid. Just you know, get some sunlight, step outside, look out the window. And then you want to get a second dose of D in the late afternoon. Now, again, that can be really challenging for those people who work. When I was a floor nurse, a bedside nurse and a hospital doing my 12s, I would often get there before the sun came up. I would leave after the sun went down. So you got to do the best you can. Number two, have a routine. Going to bed too late can contribute to the 3 a.m. wake up. So think about the term wired and tired. So you're exhausted, but you're like, buzzing. If you are a parent and you've raised a kid, you will see that there's this point where they get tired and then it switches and then they're running around like fucking maniacs because that pressure is building up so deeply that it's become kind of an unhealthy pressure and they're trying to get the pressure off. Number three, avoid caffeine eight to 10 hours before bedtime. Okay, so I'm, I'm like notorious being like, oh my God, it's 12 o'clock. I can't not have coffee. I'm going to just drink decaf right now. I really just can't have caffeine. And then sitting there and doing my little revenge procrastination situation and popping dark chocolate into my mouth. Uh, don't do that. 
don't do that at, you know, 12 o'clock, whatever that works for you. Like, that's it. It's a wrap. No more caffeine. Give it a try. Number four, no bright light between 10 and 4 a.m. Okay, so for me, that's kind of a problem because I do most of my writing at around 10 o'clock. So like I'm writing, I'm exhausted, I'm trying to get shit together and I'm eating chocolate chips. Like I am fucking myself up. Here's the big point. Do not turn on a bright light when you are waking up at 3 a.m. Light those yellow lights. I know they make special glasses for that. Uh, Don't look at your fucking phone. Don't turn on the TV. There was a study done in Italy years, 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 years past. And they said, if you have a TV in your bedroom, those people who have TVs in their bedroom have less sex. So if you want to have more sex, if you are, if that's like one of your goals for 2023, get the TV out of your room. Number five, no naps. If you have to nap, it's got to be less than 90 minutes. I don't nap unless, of course, I'm on vacation and I'm in a different country or across the country. But when I am super exhausted, I play something called NSDR, which is a non-sleep deep relaxation. It's kind of the non-yoga version of yoga nidra. I actually think I might tape one for you all so that you can listen to that, listen to my melodic Chicago accent. So those are his five tips. Sunlight, routine, no caffeine, no bright light between 10 and 4, and do not nap. Stay on a schedule. The other recommendation that I've heard from him and other providers, other practitioners, is to include magnesium at bedtime. There are nine types of magnesium. Uh, The one that he recommends are magnesium threonate or magnesium bisglycinate. Those are really important because, and why those two instead of some of the other magnesiums, these are better, these two are better at absorption. The body absorbs them better. The other thing is that, and you're not going to do-do on yourself because magnesium can help you to poop which is great for some of us. Excellent. And then some of us, it works a little too well. These are really good at, um, good for absorption and they will help with the restless legs. If that's one of your issues, they will help you to relax your muscles. They will have help you to relax your mind. I, I personally do take magnesium every single night. One thing that he also mentioned is that it's not unusual to, become extremely wired one hour before your natural bedtime. I don't know what my fucking natural bedtime is. I'm thinking at this point, it's like 8.30 at night because a bitch is tired. I want to add one other suggestion for research. Let me say it that way, for research. I've started to do mouth taping at night, and I do it for a couple reasons. I do it because I grind my teeth. Funny enough, when I put tape on my lips... So it's just a like a piece of tape just to keep my lips shut. I can drop and release my jaw. Absolutely talk to your provider before you do anything, except for like the things like get some sunlight routine, but adding supplements, taping your mouth, hormones, all of that. Definitely talk to a provider. You can also read a book called Breathe by James Nestor, and he talks about taping his mouth. Finally, what about hormones? Hormones are extremely helpful. 
and I'm not talking about the ones that you add. I'm going to talk about that. But one of the ways that we sleep is when our hormones are working and we need our brain to send signals to our hormones to release and send, you know, the hormone that sends a signal to the other hormone to say that the organ needs, you get the idea. But progesterone in particular is something that you may not be making anymore. First hormone to drop off in perimenopause. Progesterone is known to help with anxiety and is sedating. Some studies show that it helps with obstructive sleep apnea. Estrogen has been known to increase sleep time and regulate body temperature, as well as have an antidepressant effect to your perimenopausal care are hot flashes and night, night sweat. Insomnia is not a reason to start taking hormones. A word about testosterone. Testosterone is a medication that can actually worsen sleep apnea. While I think that the doses given to menopausal women are so small that you may not have an alteration in your sleep, and some people actually report that they sleep better, testosterone intake may worsen sleep apnea for some people. In particular, I'm thinking about trans men because they are taking a, as well as those men who are taking a larger dose than what a perimenopausal, menopausal woman would take. A word or several words about melatonin as a supplement. Can it help? Yes. Does it work for everyone? Yes and no. How I understand it is that for all people, taking melatonin signals to the body that it's time to rest. It's nighttime. For some people, it makes them sleepy. You do have to be careful when you're taking melatonin because there is some indication that it can disrupt your hormones. Listen, anything you do or take, there's a balance. There's a positive and a negative. There's nothing's for free. Nothing is for free. And another, another great inducer of sleep can be orgasm. Orgasm immediately allows the brain to relax. For, you know, there are always the exceptions, always the outliers. But for most people, it helps you to relax. It helps the muscles to relax. It helps the brain to relax. And this can be done either alone or with a friend. For me, doing this research, understanding sleep a little bit more and knowing how beneficial it is, uh, has already made me think about making changes. And I've made a couple. Like a couple nights ago, I went to bed by 10.30. Well, maybe it was 11, but I got I got to bed before midnight. So like that's something. So sometimes it's just the small changes. A little more information may have you saying, okay, I'm not going to have chocolate at midnight. I don't know if I'm going to go to bed at 10, but I know I'm not going to have chocolate at midnight. Getting more sleep is just going to be beneficial in all ways. And you want to get more sleep before somebody screams, see you next time because you acted out. I want you to be so well rested that they see you as a deep, I want you to be so well rested that they see you as deep and warm. Uh, a caring, understanding, noetic, tantalizing person. Take a minute and take that in. This beauty sleep thing is hot. It's real. So get more sleep. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode on sleep. And for that, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I hope you enjoyed this new episode. And if you did, please share with friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find this podcast. You can find me on Instagram at agelust 
www.lustfulagingpodcast.com. I love to share ideas and hear about your lustful aging, so feel free to DM me. If you want to work with me, there are a few ways to do that. Number one is Ageless Labs. We restart in April. This is an eight-week program that allows you to create a personalized blueprint for your aging and menopausal journey. You'll have access to experts, workbooks, and live sessions with me and other folks working through their shit. Where Ageless Labs happens virtually, there is a three-day New York City retreat happening at the end of April. This retreat is going to take the mistresses of the menopausal mind and dial it up. I'm co-facilitating with another NP who happens to be an expert in shibari, which is rope work. We'll play with understanding our changing bodies through education around menopause, movement, dream, breath, and rope work. And when I tell you that I am all about smashing old ideas about aging and more specifically menopause, I am not playing. If you're interested, again, slide into my DMs, as the kids say, for more information. Finally, I do work one-on-one with folks. And because that is virtual and a consultation, you do not have to be living in New York because I will not be prescribing. Uh, But you can get some information and education based on you personally, privately. Check the show notes for links and more info. And thank you again. Much love and lust. Until next week. Thank you.